Well, hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Good evening, Derek. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good, Neil. I'm very good tonight. Thank you very much. Excellent. Yes. So another episode of Hipstorians, folks, and joining us this evening is some serious heavyweight in the room. Yeah. Do you know who I'm talking about, Derek? Oh, I do indeed. Yeah, I've done a little bit of research. Uh, This man has a few stories to tell. That is for sure. A Pulitzer Prize winner, no less. Um, And uh, a very long and illustrious career with the Washington Post. Well, with that, let's introduce him. This, ladies and gentlemen, this is David E. Hoffman, probably most famously known for The Dead Hand at the the one that won him the big, big prize, but I'm sure he's going to tell us a lot more uh, stories this evening. Mr. Hoffman, welcome on board the Hipstorians. Thank you for joining us this very nice evening. I'm really thrilled to be here. What's it like in Ireland? Well, that's a really good question. We're in wintertime now. You're in California, David, is that right? No, 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 Washington, no. D.C. Oh, excuse me. I love Ireland. I was there a few years ago. We could talk just about Ireland. If oh, you let's mind. Talk. <laughs> yeah, because we know a lot more about Ireland than we do uh, about Washington, D.C. That's for sure. I've been to California. don't know where I got that from, but yeah, I've not made it to the, the big D.C. Well, Derek, what's Ireland like at the moment? West and uh, for a for a for a brief spell of a few days, um, the east coast of America is not five hours behind us, but four hours behind us. Why is that? Yeah, it's uh, daylight savings. Do America does it on a different day to us? Yeah, we've just done hours, so I'm not sure what happens yeah. in the states, David. Do you do the same thing with the hour change? Yes, we do, but I can never keep track. We have a, a saying you learn when you're a kid, you know, spring forward and fall back. Fall back. But, but I can never remember if I'm falling or springing. It never fails to surprise people. It happened here at the weekend and I was late for work. There you go. You know, it's, you just never, ever get it right, you know. Well, anyway, it's, uh, it's coming up to eight o'clock in the evening time here in a very wet, windy, rainy Dublin. Um, what's your time there and your weather update, please, sir? It's coming up on four o'clock in the afternoon and it's kind of gray and a very, very typical autumn day. Lots of leaves changing and uh, very pleasant, 70 degrees. Wow. Sorry, sorry, listeners. We seem to have gone off on a tangent here where now we're doing weather updates and uh, comparing where we live. But that's fine. That's a nice introduction. <laughs> I, I, I have to tell you guys on my last trip to Ireland, yeah. to Newgrange. To see the famous thing. And I am still, I have a picture on my wall of the hieroglyphics or whatever they are outside of that place. And it is the most astounding mystery I have found anywhere. Um, And my family continues to talk about whether or not we can decipher this. And, you know, even the CIA can't figure out what they were saying on that sign. (laughs) Did you ask, did you ask the CIA to check it out? I have even better sources than that, and nobody can figure it out. <laughs> well, you know what? It, it was probably written after a few pints of Guinness, and that's why, you know, I don't know if they had Guinness 2,000 years before Christ, but that's probably probably mead. That's what they called it back then, M-E-A-D. That's what they drank. So there's probably you probably need to drink a few, a few pints of mead first. And Somebody drink. said we were overthinking it, and it's really just the fancy swirl of a cappuccino, and the sign says <laughs> cappuccino, but I... <laughs> You know what? It's great. It's great. It's and you know, you know the whole the whole thing about on one day of the year the sunlight comes in through the yeah, yeah. It's amazing. We were there when they demonstrated. We went inside, and mm-hmm. they show you what it looks like on that day, which is in December. It's coming up. It's an amazing thing. It's coming up, and you can get tickets to go and see. It always sells out. It's really, really hard to get. And then invariably, what happens is it gets cloudy on that day. 
happens. It's just, it, it never works. Is that right, Derek? I'm not being cynical. It's never no, works. you're not. No, it's typical. Yeah, unfortunately. But right. uh, I, I think we're going to talk about some uh, sunnier climes with the, the topic of your latest book, uh, David, which for people over this side of the Atlantic, I suppose we, we think of Cuba, we think of Fidel Castro, um, and more recently, we think of Holland holidays you know and uh, looking at the kind of uh, the 1950s architecture and, and whatnot but the story you tell is something you know I, I, I knew nothing about it was a really really important story and and a, and a lot of what you describe and I'll ask you you know about this that the history there's a lot of parallels between the birth of the Cuban nation and also the birth of the American nation you know with slavery and the fact that you know I suppose maybe what might have been considered some ne'er-do-wells were, were carted off across the Atlantic to set up camp uh, and uh, eventually thought, Jesus, you know, we don't want to, you know, we want to have our own country now. That's part of part part of the story of Cuba, um, and you do cover all this. But the the, the subject is Os, uh, Waldo Paya and his fight for um, freedom under the Castro regime. So I uh, shall let you take it away from there and tell us a bit about that. You know, I did this book, and as I was doing it. I was writing about democracy and human rights for the Washington Post. Um, I, I write leaders or editorials, as we call them. And I sense that every day, every week, every couple months, um, democracy was losing ground in the world and that despotism and tyranny were sort of growing, not only in Russia and China, which are big, obvious cases, but, you know, a place like Belarus, which was sort of very mildly authoritarian, uh, people in Minsk, they had a big tech community there. They used to love to fly to Ireland for the weekend, you know. It was considered kind of an open place, and now it's become a dictatorship. Um, you know, you look at Burma, a very important Asian nation that was Aung San Suu Kyi was leading them toward a democracy, and now it's a military dictatorship. Um, every time you turn around Turkey, e Egypt, uh, you see that the forces of uh really of tyranny are growing and it's always been an interest to me about what drives these how does it work and especially about you know the courageous people inside them that stand up and say no and you know from your own history that it takes an enormous amount of stamina and courage and inspiration to be that guy that stands up and and says uh, i'll stand for independence i don't want to be ruled against my will so the first thing i wanted to tell you is that for me this book was uh, a real-time exercise as well as a historical one and uh, certainly in cuba today the small little tropical island that you associate with vacation is actually a tropical prison and people are locked on there they're desperately trying to escape just friday a group of some 20 people were trying to escape and the cubans rammed their boat offshore and killed five people who drowned including a little baby girl i mean the idea that people can be held in a country against their will it's hard to imagine but that's the situation in cuba today so this is a story really of our time and when I think about uh, Alexei Navalny, the dissident who's in prison in in Russia because only because he spoke out against the Kremlin and against Putin, or when I think about Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, who's really bravely fighting for Belarus independence, she won the last election and was forced out of the country as a result. Um, they're all of a piece with what happened in Cuba. So Cuba is very much part of this sort of global struggle that's going on and you know you read enough of it in the headlines you get kind of inured to the idea another crackdown 20 people were arrested I, it's very easy to get uh in many ways to the point where you don't want to pay attention anymore because there's really frankly so much of it but i also feel that if you take the telescope and look at it from the other way and take one person who's carrying out a fight for the things we care about and try to understand how it works. How do they do it? Where do they find that courage? Where's their inspiration? There's almost always a really good story there. 
when I was the Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post many years ago, guys, <laughs> I didn't have gray hair. Uh, and I was really younger and more enthusiastic. But I I love my time in Moscow. The paper sent me there. Um, it was 95 that I arrived until 2001. But and in all of my journalism, I got a, I had a chance to see the house in the woods where Andrei Sakharov wrote his famous essay. You know, it was an essay that sort of predicted that uh, communism wasn't going to last forever and maybe uh, would eventually merge with um, Western capitalism. It was not a perfect prediction, but it was here was a guy in the elite of the Soviet system, the father of their hydrogen bomb, you know, basically starting to talk about uh, capitalism and democracy. And I thought, where did Andrei Sakharov, sitting out there in nowhere, have the guts and the you know the inspiration to do this against a real totalitarian system? I mean, this was not just your you know jokey little soft authoritarian thing. This was a place where every aspect of daily life was controlled by the party, and he did it. And he struggled for years to increasingly speak out. So I thought. This book about Oswaldo Paya is about somebody like Sakharov. Paya was a pretty simple guy who had a simple idea, and that was that Cubans ought to be the protagonists of their own history and not the spectators. And he decided that he was going to devote his life, really, to seeking these rights and how he did it, you know, the methods, the sort of street by street thing is something uh I'd love to talk to you about but the central thing is that this guy really stands front and center of where we are in a lot of places he paid with his life for it but we can learn things from him and we can also try to appreciate better i think what's happening in all these other struggles good david yeah like i was in cuba okay i was there i'm gonna say around 2005 i've i've I'm lucky enough. I'm fairly well traveled, you know, you know, particularly with Europe on our doorstep. We get to visit so many different countries. I've not won a Pulitzer Prize yet. I'm a journalist myself. But, you know, there's always time. Right. I mean, you're an inspiration to well, not only that. And also you can go to Belarus. <laughs> right. Yeah. I have a bit of a bit of vacation time coming up. You know, it seems yeah. like a nice place uh, to spend a bit of time. But when I but when we, people say to me, you know, what was the the best place you've been to. I don't know if that's a good metric, but I always say Cuba. And why? 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 Exactly, exactly. Because it was the most beautiful, confusing, intriguing place that I still think about to this day. And it was probably going on, I'm going to say nearly 20 years ago. You know, I was there with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. And it was at a time when um, Fidel had kind of, he was still around, but he was off the stage. He was getting very, he wasn't seen in public much. And I think they were, they were, didn't his brother then step in, Raul, is that, that right. right? That's so, right. Yeah, it was around that time. So it was for the, for the Cuban people, it was probably a little bit of a, you know, an uncomfortable time, a little, you know, the shifts were changing, you know, and people didn't know. There's a lot of uncertainty in the air. But I'm so baffled, right? Because on the one hand, you have these people that had absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing, but they could, not own, but they could, one person could live in two or three different properties. Do you know what I mean? Like they, like we would go to these really fancy houses, but there was nothing in them. And they were begging us for medicines. This young couple that we met, she had migraine headaches and she was crying. And we went back to our, our, our hotel or whatever to, to get them some paracetamol. So they had everything and they had nothing at the same time, if that makes sense. I had this vague idea that the young people were a bit more dismissive or a bit more as, as young people are of the regime. They used to refer to Fidel and I'm for the listeners now, they'd stroke their chin like this in a, in a kind of, that was a, a comical way to take the, the piss out of him a little bit. But the older generation seemed to have a bit of respect for him, which came as a surprise to me. Now that was 20 years ago. So that's why I'm still not figured it out even after all this time. So, you know, bring us right up to today. From what you're saying, things have, have, have not gotten any better. In fact, they've gotten worse. Would that be a fair fair thing to say? It's too fair, Derek. Things have gotten much worse. And, you know, the revolution was like a lot of revolutions, including the Bolshevik one um, and the uh, Mao, 
you know, these revolutions start out with the kind of crazy utopianism, you know, uh, we're going to take from the bad system and build a beautiful um, utopia. Oh, actually did have a large amount of charisma when he entered Havana in 1959. People thought the bearded ones, he and his uh, guerrilla fighters would not be corrupt. They had an idea of equality that they would be committed to. And at that time, Fidel was actually preaching democracy for Cuba. He said he was coming to replace the dictator and he was going to be the, the great Democrat. And people believed it. Fidel would get a million people in the square shouting and screaming because he was that charismatic. But what happened is, like some of these other revolutions, uh, it began to decay pretty rapidly. And Fidel's idea of democracy, the way he defined the word, was um, I am the rule and you are the rule. He didn't want any competition in his democracy. Um, he said, if all of you come in the square and raise your hands, that's democracy. And uh, the idea that someone would challenge him, that ideas would challenge him, increasingly became intolerant. So even in 1961, he had a very big confrontation with the cultural elite, the artists. They had a very special uh, weekly publication called Lunas. This was considered the best Cuban cultural uh, publication of its time. It was read all over Latin America. And he had the editors of Lunas there, and he sat in front of them and basically was pissed off about something they had written that he thought at least indirectly hinted that they were against the revolution. And Fidel took out his pistol and put it on the table, and he said to them, he said, everything within the revolution is allowed. Anything outside the revolution is prohibited. That was borrowed from Mussolini. That was his totalitarian approach, and it became stricter and stricter and stricter over the years. And as his alliance with the Soviet Union grew, that as it did through the 60s, um, he had less and less tolerance. It was a one-party state like the Soviet Union. One man was in charge. He could tolerate no dissent. And for a while, people had a standard of living that was at least um, within their expectations. It was very good at the time he took over. In 1959, Cuba was a middle-class Latin American country. It had, you know, it was one of the few Latin American countries that had television and radio. People watched ads from the United States, you know, for Procter & Gamble on their television in Havana, because, and they wanted Tide detergent and, and so on. But the thing is that uh, Fidel created a socialist system to be essentially a satellite of the Soviet Union, and it didn't work. And over the years, the standard of living got worse and worse and worse. And for a while, the Soviets propped them up with subsidies. You know, um, he uh, Fidel sent them sugar at deeply discounted prices, and they sent him oil back. And then the, the Cubans sold the oil to somebody else, by the way. <laughs> but the point is that they managed it for a while. When the Soviet Union collapsed in 91, boy, it went south really fast. They were desperate. People were hungry. They had a long period called the special period in peacetime, which was, Fidel tried to hold it together. But, you know, people were doing things like frying a rind of grapefruit. Uh, in, in calling it steak. The government issued instructions for how to skin your cat if you got really hungry. It was a very desperate, desperate time. And the Venezuelans then bailed them out in the latter part of that decade. And things uh, were not quite as bad in the early 2000s, but they've continued uh, in the last decade or so to really go downhill. Fidel died, Raul took over. And I think a move of some desperation, but also a welcome move, Raul opened up a little bit. You know, he allowed private enterprise to start up and he made peace with the United States, at least diplomatic relations anyway. Obama went there and there was an opening. And it was a short opening, guys. It didn't last very long. And frankly, I don't uh, have any respect for Raul as a leader, but he at least had his eye on those changes that maybe were the beginning. And of course, the minute Trump came in, everything was reversed and Cuba then went back to very, very hard times. So, I mean, Derek, I'm talking about people today do not have milk. 
There is no aspirin anywhere on that island. People that have not seen a lobster in 10 years, even though they live in a Caribbean island, with teeming with seafood right off the shore. It's it's absolutely uh, heartbreaking to go to Cuba today and to see this place with its faded uh, glory and also is desperate hardship. I mean, the number of Cubans who have fled in the last year to come to the United States out of desperation is record. It's more than the Mario Bolift. Um, it's more than the Balseros of 94. In the last year, there's almost 200,000 Cubans. And these people are mostly flying to Nicaragua on charter flights and then walking overland from Nicaragua to the southern border of the United States. Some people say, oh, this is a tactic of the Cuban dictatorship. But I would say most of them are simply desperate. They have no hope. They're young people. They don't see a future anymore. It's grim, Derek. Last July, I mean, July of 2021, a young man went, uh, saw that out on his street in his town, San Antonio de los Baños, there were people who were really upset. They began to protest. Um, if you can imagine, this is a small town with a central square, a lot of palm trees, and people were wearing face masks because of COVID. And they were saying, you know, down with the dictatorship, bring us vaccines, give us food, we're hungry. This young man took his iPhone and put it on Facebook Live and held it up and began to record this demonstration which again is in a small town not in a big city in in this and uh this recording went viral within an hour a hundred thousand people in cuba in 30 cities saw it and came out to their streets and they all started protesting including in havana it touched off a storm and that could not have happened except for the fact that people are hungry and desperate the system provides them no hope no food no future after that day was over, a thousand of those people, some of them under 16 years old, were arrested for simply basically protesting on the streets of their country for a better life. So we haven't even started talking about Oswaldo Paya yet. But your question is, uh, are things getting worse? Much worse. Sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, there was a. I think in your in your book, there was you describe on a cinder block wall uh, a slogan: "When things were opening up with Raoul," uh, and it says, "In a besieged fortress, dissidence is treason." So you're right. You know, they, they they weren't prepared to open up at all. They weren't prepared to give away the regime. And and those protests that you alluded to earlier on the Varela project was this. Thing that Oswaldo did this door to door, uh, and it was to do with something. It was the something to do with 1942. Uh, the Cuban Constitution allowed for this petition of ten thousand or more. Is that right? If uh, you can explain to listeners, let me explain. That. Let me explain. So you have to realize that what I just described to you, this huge outpouring, is not something that Oswaldo Paya could have foreseen or caused because. Um, when he was active, there was no Facebook and there was no iPhone and there was no Internet connection. So Paya um, uh, spent much of his life thinking about how to mobilize the Cuban people against Castro's dictatorship. Oswaldo was born in 1952. He was about seven years old when Castro came to power and he spent his whole adult life thinking of ways to get people to stand up for their rights. You know, he had a a simple idea. Uh, I think it's actually um, something I, it's so simple that it's hard to challenge it. His idea was people are born with rights. If you will, you're God given and they're not a gift from Fidel Castro. So he can't take them away and we should reclaim our rights. You know, he, he said people have a, a right to rights and this guy, he never wanted in a state of liberty in his whole life, but it lived in his mind. So where did he get the idea? Cuba was a democracy from the moment of independence from Spain um, until 1952. So for a half century, there was a Cuban Republic. It was not a very uh, perfect democracy. It had a, there was at least one and maybe two, depending on how you count dictatorships in that period. 
But after one of the particularly bad ones uh, by my, a guy named Machado, after he was Cubans came together and wrote a democratic constitution. They wrote it in uh, 1930s, in the late 30s, and especially uh, they were seeing the rise of Nazism. This constitution was a remarkable achievement for them. They said, you know, we're going to have the right executive, legislative, judicial branches. We're going to have government by the people. And it was an amazing thing. It was actually much too long for a constitution that had everything down to teacher salaries written in it. But one of the things in this constitution that was very important was the Cubans wrote that if 10,000 people who are registered voters come together and ask for a law, uh, then Congress must respond and pass that law. Created in the constitution an idea that I call citizen initiative. And to be honest with you, this is not some really too good or thing that everybody did every week. It was kind of put in there as a check against dictatorship, right? It's this was the lever you pull if stuff gets really bad. You know, if the dictator starts mowing people down, as Machado did in 1933, and you've got to stop him, that's what you do. So they wrote it in their constitution. It was approved in 1940. The Constitutional Convention was elected in the freest and fairest election they had ever had. Everything about 1940 in the Cuban history is uh, really the zenith. It's people talk about it in awe that they actually brought that off. Twelve years after that, they had constitutional government. They had uh, peaceful transfer of power. Everything went pretty well for those 12 years until a guy named Batista came and took power by coup in 1952. But the interesting thing is this. Batista got rid of the 1940 Constitution, just said it, it's no longer in. And then when Fidel came in 59, he did the same thing. He said, we're tearing up the Constitution. I'm going to have a new one. And this, Fidel himself had promised when he was a guerrilla in the mountains that he would honor the 1940 Constitution. He said, it's holy. It's sacrosanct. We can't. And then when he came into office... He tore it up. But he, interestingly, he did not tear up the 10,000 voter citizen initiative. He left it in there. And I think he did it because he figured nobody's ever going to dare try to go and organize 10,000 people to get, you know, he, I don't know. It got left in the law. And even in 1976, when he redid the Constitution again, it got left in the law. Oswaldo Paya knew there was this kind of sleeper provision that would allow the Cuban people to claim their rights. And uh, Oswaldo, he really worked hard and believed the church would lead the way to democracy in the 1980s when he was in his 30s. By the end of that period, and I'll be happy to talk about that, he gave up on the church. He tried other things. He kind of went on a, a tear of trial and error methods of, of creating democracy. You know, he thought about um, uh, collecting signatures. It didn't go very well. They, Fidel's goons came and, and tore down his front door and painted graffiti all over the house. He tried to run for parliament. They um, escorted him out of the registration area and said, no, you're not allowed to do that. He tried to create a 46-page single-spaced transition plan for Cuba, thinking, gee, if people can only read the fine print, well, well, that didn't work because people were too hungry to read the fine print. And he tried all these things, and nothing was really working in the early 90s. And, of course, remember I mentioned this special period of deprivation after the Soviet collapse. And I want to put in here that Oswaldo Paya was aware of things that were going on around the world. Even though Cuba was isolated and many books were banned and there were no Western press, he could hear overseas radio broadcasts and people would smuggle things in. So he was very aware of solidarity, the Polish labor movement led by Lech Walesa. And he wanted to create a movement like Valenza. But of course, when he tried to do it with one trade union, the state security caught on to him and immediately had somebody arrested. He said, OK, we're not going to be like solidarity. The other thing that was haunting him was Tiananmen Square, the, the massacre of students in Tiananmen in 1989, you know, caused Oswaldo to think twice. He said, I really want to motivate 
and mobilize my people, but I don't want bloodshed. He said, bloodshed can't lead us to liberty. So in processing all of this, how do you get a society to stand up for its rights? I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all in fact we will be offering a paid subscription tier more on that later and anyhow if uh, you don't have it don't worry keep tuning in we'll be here he hit upon the idea of going after those signatures in the 1940 constitution of trying to organize people but instead of a 46 page godforsaken complex plan that nobody would understand he wrote a five-point plan very simple very direct free press free speech free assembly freedom of worship freedom for political prisoners free enterprise and he called it the varela project because father felix varela was a famous 19th century uh cuban priest and probably cuba's most illustrious educator so the name rings a bell to Cubans. And it was a petition. And here you have to hand it to Oswaldo Paya because what he was doing was kind of a genius thing. Instead of, you know, rushing at Fidel Castro's wall of totalitarianism with guns like in the Bay of Pigs or half a dozen other things, he, his only weapon was a pencil and a paper. And, and a, a petition. He was using, the genius was, he was using the law of the state against itself. And he could go around and tell everybody, look, here's the Varela Project. It's one page and it's legal. It's in our constitution. So as he began to do that, people started to sign. They started to sign their names, full names, addresses, their identification numbers. They got it that this was legal that they should stand up for their rights. There were only five of them there. They understood it. And he started to pick up some momentum. And again, this was all based on that 1940 idea. Um, here it is, 96, 97, 1998, 1999. Pope John Paul came to Cuba. And in his final homily in front of the enormous crowd in, in Havana, Pope John Paul said, you should be the protagonist of your own history, not the spectators. Well, Oswaldo Pyle was ecstatic. He didn't invent those words. I think maybe the Pope invented them. But the fact is that he, he had heard from the Pope, his spiritual leader, this idea that people could stand up and be immobilized for freedom. And after the Pope's trip, the Varela Project just took off. They really started to get signatures by the hundreds and thousands. And to stop them, I'd be happy to talk about that. But in the end, by May of 2002, without Facebook, without an iPhone, without the Internet, just by shoe leather, by walking the streets, by getting his feet dusty, by just talking to people door to door, Oswaldo Pai collected more than 10,000 signatures. He submitted them to the legislature of cuba in may 2002 and you know what he had another twenty thousand stashed away the nuns were his secret army the nuns kept them in a place where state security couldn't find them in, inside where 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 they lived i'd imagine yes and they know, you know, they were very courageous. They put, the, uh, they took a big risk, but the nuns understood that Oswaldo Paya was collecting signatures and voicing hopes for democracy that represented the whole country. By this time, guys, the Cuban Revolution had run out of gas. Nobody believed the slogans anymore. Nobody believed, you know, this idea that it was going to be some kind of utopia. 
People were hungry. They were discouraged. They, again, they couldn't see a future. And it was really uh, unfortunate that some of the idealism of uh, that time didn't become reality. I don't, th- I, I, I think there are a lot of people with ideological views about Cuba, but mine is, you know, show me the money, show me the, the reality of what happened. And the reality is that people were hungry, that people felt that even though the revolution promised, you know, free healthcare and education and in some extent delivered on those two things, it didn't deliver on a decent diet. It didn't deliver on a chance for, you know, leaving the country. People were prohibited, barred on their island from going off of it. What if people said to you, you can't leave Ireland? You need a government's permission, a permit, before you can catch a flight. Or, or I mean, that's what exists. And so what kind of a society was it if the people who ruled you said, you you know, you can't leave? It's, it's nothing to compare, but just to dip into it a little bit, we had a sense of that during the whole COVID restrictions, like many countries did, where the government, you know, quote unquote, made us do things we didn't want to do, um, such as good, you know, things that were good for you, wearing masks and get get inoculated and the backlash against that and street protests i'm a journalist myself cover them every single weekend not a saturday went past that we would be at o'connell street and right in the middle of dublin where you had people with placards protesting just about that so can you imagine what would happen just to use your analogy if they tried to stop us leaving the country well and what if they told you that protest was illegal not only you can't leave, you can't go, but protest is illegal. Hold up one sign and you can be arrested and put in jail. And this is something about Paya. He was sort of fearless, but he realized the Cuban people still had a lot of fear. But I love the story about how when he was a young man, you know, uh, Fidel Castro outlawed Christmas. He basically said people could celebrate inside their home, but you could have no outside uh, displays of religion because Christianity was marginalized in the revolution. I mean, Oswaldo grew up in a Catholic family that uh, had had stones thrown at them on their way to mass on Sunday. Uh, rotten eggs were thrown at the door of of the church. Uh, sometimes the regime would take motorcycles and run them in circles around the church during mass in order to interfere with, and this kind of stuff was routine. They were delegitimatized and pushed to the margins of Cuban society for simply being Catholics. And Oswaldo fought this all his life. And I can talk more about the, the battle that he took on with the church. But the ultimate thing is that he decided to take things into his own hands a little bit. And uh, he and two of his friends decided that it, to break through, they made a sign that said Merry Christmas in Spanish, Feliz Navidad, and they made it out of some scrap and and like some electric wire, and they put this thing together. It was like a little neon sign you might find in a store, you know? It was blinking, all right? So then they get a ladder, and they climb the bell tower of their church. The church was named El Salvador del Mundo, and it was a, a very unusual parish church. One reason, because it's the only parish church in all of Cuba with a bell tower that's in the, around in the shape of a silo. It's an unusual architecture for a church. Most of them are sort of square. So they had a, a stairwell. They took the sign up the stairwell. Then they put a ladder on a ledge, and they climbed higher and higher. And Oswaldo got to the top, and he leaned out of the little sort of belfry window there where the bells were located and hung started to hang this sign again, you know, that was lit up and flashing against the authorities. Right. But as he was hanging it, he started to slip and the ladder fell out from under and he shouts, Oh shit, the thing is falling, but he grabbed it and it didn't fall and he hung it. And then he and his friends started listening and out in the square, all these young girls came up and they started chanting, Oh shit, it's falling. Oh shit, it's falling. <laughs> but the they hung it and it did light up and um it did was a, a small protest. But that's what that you know, they felt like nothing should stop them. And all his life Oswaldo wanted to figure out how he could marshal this faith that he had into political change. And in the end, he couldn't. But 
I often ask myself when I did this book, how does somebody draw from Christianity the uh, idea that it could lead to political freedom? Uh, and, you know, uh, you can read till you're blue in the face. Uh, there's centuries of teaching. And as you know, it's a church that has gone both directions. But the interesting thing to me was that it wasn't in the doctrine. You know, I mean, w where it was, was this. When he was a young boy, there was a parish priest. His name was Alfredo Petit. He later became a high-ranking church official. But Alfredo Petit, when he was the parish priest in that El Salvador del Mundo Parish in Havana, in the neighborhood of El Cerro, he told these young people within the, the walls of this building, you are free. You can say anything you want. This will be a temple of freedom. And Oswaldo took that seriously. And they had discussion groups, and they found that this parish priest would defend the idea that they could do anything unlike outside. In the square just beyond the church, you could be arrested. But inside the church uh, and the youth group, would be freedom. And Oswaldo then concluded that maybe that his Catholic faith could be the vessel, the vehicle for him to champion freedom. And later years, he established a, what we would call sort of a club, a discussion group about very sensitive topics, including Father Varela, that topics that were prohibited in the schools, um, in the church. He did this in the church because he felt that this was a place where people can be free. And, you know, despite all of the marginalization that he felt in his mother and his family, in the 1980s, the Cuban bishops were in deep trouble. Um, during the time of the most important rethinking of Catholicism in Latin America, um, the important conference at Medellin, um, Vatican II, and then a smaller conference in Pueblo, Mexico, the Cuban bishops who went to these conferences and saw the larger church rethinking its role in Latin America, they felt completely left out. They realized that there was, you know, this small little dictatorship on the island of Cuba. N nobody was paying much attention to their troubles. And as I said, they had a lot of troubles, right? I'm talking about uh, pews that were empty. There were sometimes up to uh, 10 or 11 churches for each parish priest. I mean, the the whole ranks of the priests and nuns have been sent abroad by Fidel. There are very few left. So these bishops in 1982 and 83, they began thinking, what are we going to do? You know, the rest of the church is having a earth-shattering uh, revolution. Vatican II, Medellin, and Pueblo were an effort by the Catholic Church to essentially move away from the rich, wealthy elites and focus more on the poor. And also it was a way for them to uh, uh, realize that poverty was not simply a some kind of condition that was created by institutions. It was, you know, the, to take it seriously as a mission. And finally, in 1983 and 84, the Cuban bishop said, let's do the same. Let's also reevaluate where we stand, right? I mean, we're living uh, in a dictatorship, there's not much we can do. A fellow who became the Archbishop of Havana, Jaime Ortega, um, was looking around for an assistant. And he was from a town in Cuba, Matanzas. It's a cattle raising area. It's a very agricultural part. But Jaime was looking, always interested in having young people um, to help him out. And Oswaldo's mother was from Matanzas. So through connections, through one of his aunts to his mother, Jaime Ortega picked Oswaldo Paya to be his assistant at the time of this great reflection. Paya was very, very excited about this assignment. You know, he was about um, 32 years old, and he did things like he took notes. He For Ortega, he arranged meetings. He, he was an organizer. He was an assistant, right? But he felt like it was really important work because they were going to change. The church was going to take the lead against Fidel. Again, the church was going to be the temple of freedom. He really had high hopes, and he saw a lot of people, you know, very, very eager for change. Um, and things were going fine until 1985 when 
Jaime Ortega's called a conference. The conference will be in 86 in February. Um, before that, uh, all the different groups who would come from various cities in Cuba would do some preparatory work and they would bring speeches and texts and there would be a final big report that sort of talking about the way forward for the church in Cuba. And again, this is something that uh, Paya thought would be a breakthrough in the Cuban dictatorship. But there was a secret story going on. Secretly, Ortega was also negotiating with Fidel Castro for a rapprochement that would not lead to freedom. But publicly, he was planning this big conference. Finally, Castro published a book with a Brazilian cleric called Fidel on Religion. It didn't really say very much, but it sort of indicated that Fidel was willing to talk about religion for the first time. And uh, Jaime Ortega prepared to have the conference. He called a preparatory meeting of the Havana uh, group that would be at the conference. And Oswaldo Paya was there. So this is 85. You know, he's 33 years old. He's really hepped up. And he wrote his own speech uh, with his then fiance, Ophelia Acevedo. And Ophelia and Oswaldo wrote a speech that basically said the church should lead the way. It should be the temple of freedom, summoning the Catholic Church to its highest calling. And they wrote this out. The title of the speech was called Faith and Justice. And Payot read it out at a meeting with Ortega sitting at the table in the front of the room. And Ortega nearly blew a stack. He said, Oswaldo, you can't give this speech. You can't put this in our final report. Um, basically, he was worried that Fidel was going to crack down on him again. You know, he was making a backroom deal with Fidel, and he, Oswaldo Paya was stunned. You know, he was basically found that his church was not going to lead the way toward democracy and freedom in Cuba. And again, I ask in the book, you know, what goes through a man's mind? What causes him to do things? How does he overcome setback? like this. And that's what, to me, makes the book so fascinating, is that it's a way to see what this thing about democracy really is by somebody who devoted their life to trying it. And after this setback with the conference, and um, when I was no longer allowed to um, speak out for democracy, he decided that the church was not going to lead the way, and he would go into politics instead. Wow, what a story. David, you know, I, I, I don't have a question so much as an observation. And um, when you're speaking about this stuff, you know, not only do you know what you're talking about, obviously, as, as a journalist, but you seem to be like really speaking from the heart. Like this stuff means something to you. Do, do you get that as well, Derek? I, I see it. Not 100%. Even, yeah. yeah. When, when you're talking about this stuff, it's not like as, you know, uh, you're over here observing what's happening over there and getting a damn good story out of it, which which all journalists want, and then move on to the next thing. Like, you really are speaking from the heart on this. You know, it's partly... Um, I've been... It was, uh, covered Reagan when he was president of the United States. I was the White House correspondent when Reagan was president, and I was pretty skeptical of that guy. I think my coverage was pretty tough. I had a uh, maybe a sort of you know, passing understanding of the issues. And after that, the paper sent me briefly, I mean, for two years to Jerusalem. Then I did a year in Oxford to study Russian. But in 1995, I got to Moscow and I I had an epiphany. Um, what I saw what was happening in Russia from the 90s up till I left in 2001 and since um, this has been the central thing I studied in my life and wrote about. And my other books are about Russia and the Cold War. I saw very, very clearly what totalitarianism really means in the daily lives of people. And I saw how it was lived. And believe me, guys, when I saw things in Russia, I couldn't believe, you know, I never would have understood that they had happened when I was listening to Reagan give a speech about the evil empire. When I got there and heard people talk about it, especially remember, the 90s was the period of greatest freedom in a thousand years of Russian history. Imagine that. I was really lucky to be right there when people were really free to talk about how what had happened in Soviet times and to hear them talk about it. And I wrote about this in my in the book, The Oligarchs. And 
you know, to hear this outpouring of the struggle and the difficulty. Well, when I started looking at Oswaldo Paya, I knew exactly what I was looking at. I knew what kind of society, what kind of battle he was fighting. And it wasn't like I had to learn it again because this particular kind of system that crushes civil society, that basically says to every individual, do as you're told, that denies individual initiative, that creates some kind of utopian ideal that the collective will will do all, it's been an utter failure. It's failed the Chinese, by the way. They're now uh, well, you know, uh, into capitalism. It's failed in the Soviet system, which fell apart. And by the way, Russia, for all of its misdeeds, is still uh, partially a capitalist system. And I mean, I'm sorry, but show me anywhere. Show me anywhere communism today has succeeded. It is. Yeah, that's, uh, and true. that's what got me. The answer to your question is, I recognize this fight for what it really was. It was a noble thing that Oswaldo did. He was uncompromised. He had this vision about rights. He was not kind of a bookish philosopher king. He read some books, but it came from people themselves. So I have to tell you that I was sort of uh, primed for this one. Do you, do you feel like you're a man on a mission? Not so much that. I mean, a mission to tell a story. Um, a mission to bring the story out and so people can understand. I'm sorry, but nobody has really grasped that uh, Oswaldo Pyle was kind of the Sakharov of Latin America. You know, yeah. we hear about Andrei Sakharov in the Soviet Union and, you know, and so on. But people don't realize that people of his standing, of his stature, have tried this elsewhere. And again, I feel like that the whole uh, mythology and the romantic legends of Fidel Castro are so strong that people need to see the other side. So I'm on a mission in some ways to show people there was another side to that story. And, 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 what, is, and what is it, David, that, you know, at the start, the, well, I mean, the, the state security um, in Cuba was Stasi trained, right? And, you know, the Stasi are no more. And, okay, you know, the KGB kind of transferred into the FSB. And, you know, Russia had a, a brief stay of, of uh, you know, freedoms for people. But, but what is it that's maintaining this state apparatus in Cuba? How are they staying in control of the populace? Well, first of all, they're not because they're gradually losing control. And, you know, after that demonstration last July, July of 2021, um, there have been more. There are now demonstrations almost every week in various towns and cities. But let's go back for a second. Fidel created a secret police. Of course, that's how these uh, authoritarian systems work. You have to be able to, to offer people a club if they don't do what you tell them to. And the club, I mean, the club of you know getting hit over the head, that's, uh, that's exactly what this... Castro himself, you know, he had been with a bunch of guerrilla fighters in the in the mountains, but he needed some help in terms of how to build a, a secret police. And one of the interesting things is that in East Germany, when they decided to build a secret police, the first thing they did is they knocked heads. They had some pretty brutal head bashing uh, repressions in the 50s. And then they got to thinking, you know, it's much better if you can stop this before it happens. If you can infiltrate dissidents, if you can, you know, quietly find a way to pull the plug on the protest before it happens, that's much better. It's cleaner and you don't need as many jail cells. So the Stasi perfected this art of uh, really destroying people from within, subverting them, pulling the plug on their plans, uh, creating confusion, smearing them, creating vast amounts of record keeping. And the Stasi were the training grounds for the Cuban state security. And not only the Cubans, they trained other countries too. Because the KGB said to the Stasi, you guys can do some of the training for some of these other countries. And by the way, the Stasi did this better in many ways than the KGB. Um, so, you know, they had this thing called in German, Zersetzung, which is just decomposition. If you you were targeted by them, they, they did everything they could to make you come apart. 
at the seams. And they trained the Cubans in how to do this. And in the book, uh, in Give Me Liberty, I show how this happened and how they were trained and what it was involved in it. Well, the Stasi went away with the Cold War in 1989. And yet the lessons of the Cubans became expert and they still are to this day. And here we are 30 years later and uh, the Cuban government puts a high priority on recruiting people and paying them to serve in state security. It's one of the jobs you can get, you know, they you can put food on the table and they have a huge state security system and they train them in all these methods and they use them against Oswaldo Paya constantly, including death threats. And ultimately they killed them. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And he was been, he, he was actually trying to uh, escape as well at that time as well, wasn't he? With, with the help of some Swedes and uh, a Spaniard. He was not really, I wouldn't say escape. He was going on a, a trip to Santiago de Cuba on the far eastern end down to do some democratic training to show other people, the visiting Cubans and Spaniard, how to train people for democracy. And they were uh, volunteering to drive him across the country because he couldn't go by plane or train or bus. He was banned. And so if he tried to go anywhere, state security would catch on and they would follow him. But he figured out a secret way, a clandestine way to get around. And that was by getting some volunteers to come and rent a car that would have tourist plates. And if he kind of hunkered down in the back seat, they could take him for a couple of days before state security would find him. And that's what happened here. It's very unfortunate. They must be watching very carefully. Have you any suggestions as to how they discovered him so quickly? Because this was literally, they, they left at pre-dawn. Um, roads were quiet. They could see the tail from uh, quite early on. And uh, oh, they knew they were, being, they were being followed. That happened pretty fast. He must have been watched. You know, uh, you have to remember that for years, Oswaldo Pau, who had championed this Varela project, Remember that after that, 75 of his people were thrown in prison in the Black Spring of 2003. Um, uh, 2006, uh, Paya was threatened with death. Repeatedly, people would come up to him and say, you won't live longer than Fidel Castro. And Fidel was in his 80s and very ill. So this was a constant pressure. Um, Oswaldo and Ophelia had decided to send their children abroad, even though when they were newlyweds, they had promised to raise their children in a free Cuba. It was becoming impossible. So this particular Sunday in um, July of 2012, he had submitted, by the way, another 14,000 signatures in 2003, and there were still 10,000 more hidden in Cuba of people that had supported it. You know, times were changing. By 2009, 2010, the internet started coming in very slow at first in Cuba, but people started to communicate. Bloggers came up, younger dissidents appeared. Oswaldo was in many ways kind of the elder statesman by 2012, and he was 60 years old. Uh, so this trip he was making was the kind of thing he loved to do, but he wasn't at all surprised that they were following him. The state security caught onto the car, the, like you say, the first day. Um, they followed him for a while, and then they dropped him. And then uh, late in the afternoon, a car with government plates came roaring up behind them and smashed into them from behind. It was not a collision. It was more like a shove, but it caused the Spaniard who was driving to lose control of the car. Now, I don't know. Uh, I don't think anybody knows for sure what happened next, but uh, Swaldo was killed in the events that followed, as I describe in the book, and so was Harold Sapero, his protege, who was in the back seat with him. The two foreigners in the front seat survived. And I think, to me, the most telltale thing about this is that after all those death threats, Oswaldo was killed. And then when uh, the Spaniard was accused of reckless driving and put on trial. But in the trial, the fact that they were rammed from behind was never mentioned. It was covered up, whitewashed, um, and the reason is that the Cubans did it. And that is an incontrovertible fact. 
some of the other facts are a little bit in dispute, but there are important questions like why were they ran from behind on a lonely country road in the middle of nowhere? And then why, when that happened, did rescue vehicles appear almost immediately? You can't get an ambulance to come within an hour in most places in Cuba. It was just very, very unusual. And I think that the, at least you can surmise the state security set them up. Right. What a gripping tale. What an amazing tale that you brought us through this evening. David, I hope you, you, our listeners won't kill us when I say that we could, you know, discuss this <laughs> right into the, or what would be the early hours here for us, Derek. Uh, you've got a little yeah. bit more time in your, in your, in your evening there, David, but I mean, Listen, I want to mention, guys, the book's published by Icon Books, so there's a uh, an edition on your uh, local bookshelves, okay? Go to your local bookstore. You don't have to order it from America. Um, yeah. There is a Ireland and UK edition from Icon Books. It's got a blue cover. Please look for it because the only way I can stay alive to write more books is if a couple of you out there buy it. Uh, we absolutely. Make and, and take up the mantle and yeah, get the story spread around. No, absolutely. Because uh, like you said, Neil, we, we feel it from the heart. You've certainly touched me this evening and uh, I'm sure you'll touch our, our, lif- our listeners. Give me liberty. Uh, and, and if you want to be ultra lazy about it, you can get it uh, on iBooks quite easily as well so and if people are interested i have a website david e it's one word david e and it tells all about the book there some of the original documents are there if people have some doubts they could go there first and look that's great stuff david listen i, I can't let you go without one last question what was ronald reagan like you know it's very interesting i covered him i was 26 years old I was really just starting my career. He was 65, you know, and he was um, truly a masterful communicator. He had a way of cocking his head and saying, well, you know, there are no simple answers, just easy ones. Uh, He had just a way with one liners and a way, but all the years I covered him, and I'm, you know, I was on his campaign in 1980. I covered the White House almost to the end. I don't think he ever called me by my name. Really? You know, he was not personal that way. For those of us, at least for me, for a few reporters, he he knew their names. But for the rest of us, you know, Reagan was a little bit detached. He was was spectacularly good at communications and not particularly good at personal communications. Well, I mean, you know, there's a whole other story there, David. You know, you've been so gracious and generous with your time to see what maybe maybe you'd do us the honor of coming back on, speaking uh, a bit more about your other aspects of your of your life. I mean, we have been happy to even push off Moscow. You know, I want to ask you so much more about how you feel the world is today, because we started this conversation. It sounded quite like, you know, we're heading into way more turbulent times than any time before. But I think that's a whole other big subject for another evening, we, we we wouldn't be able to pack it in here. But again, you thank you so much for your time. I can see you're, you've got a busy newsroom there behind. I know what it likes, to, what it's like to work in one of those. So I appreciate it coming on and being able to to share your great story. As Derek said in this fantastic book, "Give Me Liberty: True Story of Us Waldo Paya and His Daring Quest for Free Cuba." Folks, get it, get it now, just to learn a little bit more about the world we live in. Thank, thank you very much, David. Thank you. An encyclopedic knowledge, uh, a whirlwind tour of the world in the last 40 years. Yeah, I feel like I know nothing in comparison. <laughs> Just, that's what the se- sensation was. I was wondering what it was as we further went into it and me blissfully trotting through my fantastic little holiday I had in Cuba. <laughs> and then... By 20 minutes later, I I, I was ashamed of myself. (laughs) Yeah, you won't be going back so fast. You won't be going back anytime soon. It was around the time you were there when this Varela project was actually uh, uh, gaining ground, you know, so uh, interesting. You know, like I said there, my gosh, I can't wait for his biography to come out. He's, he's not it wouldn't be too well known this side of the water mm. um but uh i mean yeah he's an incredible voice um and uh you really touched into the fact that like i mean i, I think he was nearly in tears you know with, uh, well, he, he, he was... you pick that up straight away when you're talking to people you know uh, when they're writing about something that 
as an observer, that's quote unquote their job. Then they move on to the next one. But he like that's why I asked him. Man, you sound like a man on a mission. Like he's he's taken on board this responsibility to tell the world about what's been what he's seen and what's going on in these totalitarian states. And you know that's what I really wanted to get in and, and ask him as well. You know about where does he see the, the world heading to? But I don't think I would have liked the answer. No, unfortunately not, you know, but uh, he's as well placed as anybody to go and, and speak about these things and get that message out. But I mean, he, he knows what he's up against. I mean, essentially, he's, you know, he's he's pleading with people to pick up the book and obviously, you know, make, you know, the world aware. And um, that's as much power as he has over the fate of the Cuban people. Um, there you go. Yeah. That's not a responsibility you wear lightly, you know. Um, so again, folks, Give Me Liberty, the true story of Oswaldo Paya and his daring quest for a free Cuba out now. Get on, as Derek said, you don't, you know, you can just go online and get it. You should also probably buy, buy a book as well. No harm. Let's keep these people in the job. Oh, indeed, indeed. And, and thanks for listening, everybody. And please do uh, hit the like button. It helps uh, get us up the charts, gets us known and discovered by more listeners. I uh, hope you're enjoying everything to date. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see you next time. Hasta mañana. <laughs> Take care, Neil. Thinking of renovating or extending your home this year? Perhaps something a little smaller? New bathroom, new kitchen, help with soft furnishings? Well, look no further than Nine Yards Design Interior Design Studio. Based in Dublin 14, their services are for clients who want help planning and creating a beautiful interior for their home. They can do everything from designing the initial concept, scaled drawings, lighting design, colour schemes, soft furnishings and bespoke furniture through to styling at completion. They have a wealth of experience working on different size projects from one room to a full redevelopment and can offer their services nationwide. So if you're looking for a touch of class or that's something a little bit different that sets you apart from the rest, check out their work at nineyardsdesign.ie.